I don't believe my eyes. And I don't mean what I'm seeing here. You know, sometimes we see something, though, that is so incredible that that's what we say. I don't believe my eyes. We just we can't believe what it is that we're seeing. And friends, the problem that the Pharisees had today, the Pharisees and Sadducees had today in this passage was not that I don't believe my eyes. They had a problem and it was I won't believe my eyes. It wasn't that they they couldn't believe. It's that they refused to believe. The problem wasn't an issue of evidence, but of willingness. You see, it wasn't an issue of what they had witnessed The issue that they were dealing with was an issue of what they wanted. Jesus has returned from back to Jewish country from his wildly successful Gentile tour, which we read about last week. And he's immediately confronted by the combined forces of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, friends, you need to understand how strange this alliance is. These two Jewish sects were opponents And this is actually the only time in the Gospels that we see these two forces actually join together with one another. It's kind of like the religious right and the religious left coming together. Or in our current political situation, it would be like a MAGA Republican and a member of the Democratic squad joining forces together. Because as the old adage goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so these two parties have found a common enemy in Jesus. And these representatives were presumably sent all the way from the leadership in Jerusalem. Why? Because they've been hearing what Jesus has been doing. They've heard about his teachings. They've heard about the miracles. So presumably, this joint venture of the Pharisees and Sadducees were sent from the leadership in order, as it says in verse 1, to test him. And so what do they do? They show up and they ask for a sign. And Jesus' response is, no. No. He he says, no, because even if I give you another sign, you won't believe your eyes. You refuse to believe your eyes. Friends, remember Pharaoh. Pharaoh saw ten signs, ten plagues, and he still stood in defiance. And Jesus knows that this is the same issue with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Friends, this isn't an issue of evidence. It's an issue of willingness. And Jesus goes, listen, listen, from small, tiny little signs that you see in the atmosphere, from very little evidence, you are able to follow that evidence and forecast the weather. But I've given you some pretty big teachings Some pretty big miracles. The evidence is right in front of you and you still refuse to follow that evidence to the conclusion that you need to come to. The issue is not that you can't believe your eyes. The issue is that you won't believe them. You all have ignored or explained away all of my previous miracles. And Jesus knows this delegation hasn't actually been sent to confirm his identity. They've been sent to discredit his identity. So he goes, no, I'm not playing your game. And walks away. And instead, Jesus moves on with his disciples. And as he moves on with them, he warns them against the same hardness of heart that the Pharisees and Sadducees just demonstrated. He says in verse 6, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, in rabbinical writings, leaven or yeast 
was often a symbol of evil. And just as the bakers amongst us know, just takes a little bit of leaven, a little bit of yeast to work its way through the entire batch of dough. And Jesus, he he warns his disciples against this. And what do we see? The disciples, they're a little bit dull. They, They think that he's talking about real leaven and real bread. So Jesus reminds them of what they've now seen, not once, but twice. I'm able to supply bread in abundance. Friends, at this point, just take a note. Take a note. The disciples are dull. But the Pharisees are hard. You know what? There's a huge difference between being a slow learner and an obstinate disbeliever. They may be slow, but the Pharisees and Sadducees are hard. And Jesus warns them against that kind of hardness. You guys may be a little slow, but don't let that harden you. Don't let that same hardness of heart that has infected the Sadducees and Pharisees infect you. Because, friends, every one of us needs to confess that the issue is often less about evidence and more about willingness. It's not that we can't believe or that we don't know. It's that we don't want to. We won't believe. And friends, if you're here today, if you're here today and you've already decided about who Jesus is and you've hardened yourself in that understanding, this is absolutely who Jesus is and this is absolutely who Jesus could not be. If you're already hardened against the fact that Jesus might be the Christ who he claimed to be, I invite you to let down your guard today. I invite you to invite the Holy Spirit to come and soften your heart as we again consider this the most important of all questions. Who do you say that Jesus is? So Jesus goes on with his disciples and we hear him first ask, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Because then and today, everybody, everybody's got an opinion about who Jesus is. And so the disciples answer by listing all the usual suspects in verse 14. They say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, other as Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, the crowds understand he's at very least a great teacher and most likely a prophet. And friends, many today still try to settle right there on that question. Who is Jesus? A great teacher, a prophet. You know, that's what all the other major religions of this world say. Judaism sees Jesus as a rabbi or a teacher. Islam recognizes him as a prophet. Buddhism regards Jesus as enlightened. Hinduism regards him as a guru or maybe even a demigod. But is such an understanding of Jesus sufficient? Is it enough? Well, author and apologist C.S. Lewis argued that understanding Jesus merely as a teacher, friends, is not only inadequate, it's actually impossible. It's not only inadequate understanding of Jesus, it's an impossible understanding of Jesus. In his book, Mere Christianity, which every one of you should read, in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis argues, he says, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not, be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg 
or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. Friends, Jesus has not left open the possibility of just calling him a great human teacher or a prophet. Remember, this is the same Jesus who in John 14, 9 claimed anyone who's seen me has seen the father. This is the same Jesus who in Matthew 10, 37 and 38 said anyone who loves his father or mother or son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus claims, if you don't believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. Friends, imagine I said any of those things. Anyone who's seen me has seen God the Father. (laughs) Thank you. Or if I said, if you don't believe who I am. And who I claim to be, you're all going to die in your sins. Friends, you wouldn't call me a great teacher. There's other names you'd call me, but not great teacher. Having said all of these things and far more, Jesus did not leave open the door to just call him a great teacher. Because merely a great human teacher would not have said the things that this man said. So it is not only an inadequate understanding of Jesus' identity, friends, it's an impossible understanding of Jesus' identity. He is either who he claimed to be, or he is a liar, or a lunatic, or something far worse. So friends, are you here trying to settle your understanding of who Jesus is right where the crowd tried to settle it? The crowd then, or the crowd today? Are you trying to settle in on the destination of Jesus was just a great teacher or a prophet? Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, "Okay, well, that's who the crowd says. But who do you say I am? Friends, who do you say I am? That is the most important question you will ever answer in your life. Because on this question hinges your life. On this question, your eternity hinges. On this question, all of human history has hinged. The answer to this question, friends, is the turning point. The answer to this question is the turning point of people's lives. The answer to this question is the turning point of history. The answer to this question is the turning point we're going to see in Matthew's Gospel. Because as of the asking and answering of this question, we're going to see Jesus taking a completely new tact in dealing with his disciples. It's sharper. It's more direct. Because, friends, this question and the answer to it changes absolutely everything. The question is poised to all of the disciples. But Peter, characteristically, he's the one who speaks up. And so we hear him respond in verse 16. Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. As we've talked about before, Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. 
The Lord had promised that one day he would send a Messiah to deliver his people. And Peter identifies Jesus as that Messiah. You, you are God's anointed, the king and the deliverer. And I don't know that Peter even fully comprehended all that he was saying, but he went on and he was absolutely correct. Jesus is not only the Messiah, but he is the very son of the living God. Friends, we hear that confession, but you need to understand something about it. That confession, that understanding of who Jesus is, that's not something you guess. That's something you have to be given. That's not something you reason to. It's a revelation. And that's what Jesus says in verse 17. Jesus answers, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar means son of. So Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. So God himself must reveal to our blind, stubborn, hardened hearts the truth about who Jesus really is. You are the Christ the son of the living God. You know, the apostle Paul confirmed this in Ephesians chapter three. He wrote that the mystery of Christ, the mystery of Christ was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it's now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. So friends, they were had revealed to them and now revealed to us the truth that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And friends, this Confession changes everything. In verse 18, Jesus says, I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, these words have caused all kinds of controversy throughout history. I don't believe that Jesus is naming Peter here as some kind of a pope. Peter is not named as the foundation of the church. Peter's confession is named as the foundation of the church. In fact, Jesus here is actually using a little play on words. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, which in Greek is Petros. And on this rock, which is Petra, I will build my church. You are Petros. And on this Petra, I will build my church. Now, friends, you need to understand Petros is both a name and it's the Greek word for stone or like a rock that you could pick up. But Petra doesn't just mean a stone you'd pick up. Petra means bedrock. In fact, we hear that same word used a couple of other places in Matthew's gospel. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus was teaching, he concluded the Sermon on the Mount with these words in Matthew 7:24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the Petra. Now, you don't build your house on a loose stone. You build it on the bedrock. And in the same way, when Jesus is crucified and he's and his body is laid in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. Matthew 27, verse 60 tells us that 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 Joseph laid the body in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the Petra. You you don't cut a tomb into a, a stone. You cut it into the bedrock. So Jesus says, Peter, on the bedrock foundation of the confession that you've just made, that I am the Christ, the son of the living God, I am going to found my church. It's like we sang this morning in the hymn, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, 
the Lord. He's the foundation. There is no other. And Jesus says on this foundation, on a true understanding of who I am, on that foundation, I'm going to build my church. Now, the Greek word that he uses here for for church is ekklesia. It's used about 113 times in the New Testament. But interestingly, it's only used twice in the Gospels. There's only two times in the Gospels that we hear the word church mentioned, both of them by Jesus, once here and once in two chapters from here in Matthew chapter 18. And so we find that he's talking about the ecclesia, and ecclesia literally means a calling out, the called out ones. And so what we find is that God is calling out and establishing a people, and the foundation of that people is this confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the bedrock foundation of the community of God's people. It's the identity of Jesus Christ. And friends, not only is this confession the foundational bedrock, we also find it's the key. In verse 19, he says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, friends, this foundation is the key. He says you can't enter the kingdom without the confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is the key that opens up the door to the kingdom. Christianity may be more than this confession, but, friends, it is not less than this confession. Christianity is not less than this confession that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And in the same way, the ecclesia, the church of Jesus Christ, may be more than this confession, but it is certainly no less than a people called out of this world and identified by the confession that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. Now, tragically today, there are some people who have abandoned this confession and understanding of Jesus, but they still try to cling to the name Christian. And even more disturbingly, there are some organizations that have abandoned this confession of Jesus, and they still try to cling to the name church. And they're just deceiving themselves. It cannot be. Without the foundation, the whole structure collapses. Without the key, the door remains locked. The confession, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is the foundation and the key. It unlocks the door of the kingdom and entrance into the church, and it provides a firm foundation on which to build your belief, your practice, and your life. So, friends, how do you answer Jesus' question then? Who do you say that I am? Now, when Jesus says here in verse 19, he's giving his followers the keys to the kingdom and then speaks of binding and loosing. He's talking about including and excluding from the community. And again, Matthew 16, Matthew 18, the only two places where Jesus uses the word church or ecclesia, in both places he talks about binding and loosing, including and excluding. And so we'll talk more about this idea of binding and loosing when we get to Matthew 18 in a few weeks. But for right now... The most important truth to grasp is the confession that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the key to the kingdom. That is the foundation of the church. It is Jesus identity. And friends, if all this is true, then how does verse 20 make any sense to us? How does verse 20 make any sense? 
Jesus just said, hey, listen, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. This is how to get into the kingdom. And then he says in verse 20, Jesus strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Jesus tells Peter and his disciples, you've got the key that unlocks the kingdom. Don't tell anyone. What's going on here? Friends, one word. Expectations. Expectations. Jesus knew the crowds had some very specific expectations of what the Messiah would be and do. And most believed the Messiah was going to be a son of David, a great king like David, a powerful warrior, strong, victorious, delivering God's people. The Messiah was going to be a great military leader like Judas Maccabees, who in 166 B.C. had led an army of Jewish dissidents to victory over the Seleucid dynasty. They believed that the Messiah was going to be a great warrior. So that the term Messiah was loaded with expectations. And so Jesus says, before you go out declaring Messiah, you need to understand what Messiah actually means. And so in verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, friends, suffering and dying at the hands of those people that you're going to save was not part of the expectation of what Messiah was going to be. So Jesus warns his disciples, he goes, I am, I am the Messiah, just as you confess. But you need to understand, I might not be what you expect. I am the Messiah, but not necessarily what you expect, because the disciples wanted a conquering Messiah. Jesus preached a cross. The disciples expected a supreme Messiah. Jesus predicted a suffering Messiah. The disciples expected a delivering Messiah and Jesus preached a dying Messiah. Friends, Jesus is the Messiah, but not as the people expected. So Peter, when he responds by saying, no, he's actually saying what everybody else is thinking. No. Now, friends, Peter, who yells no, you might remember that just six verses earlier, that's the same Peter who made a confession, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and and Jesus praises him. He goes, look, God spoke through you and gave that to you. And six verses later, he's yelling, no! No! And so Jesus turns and rebukes him in verse 23. Jesus turns and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. So, friends, in six verses, Peter goes from a conduit through which God is bringing divine truth to a stooge being used by Satan. Church, let that keep us humble. It's easy to be so right one minute and so wrong the next. And understand from Peter's response that we today are still, like Peter, tempted to tell Jesus who he should be. Today, we are still tempted, like Peter was, to tell Jesus exactly what he should do and shouldn't do, who the Messiah should be and shouldn't be. We want to decide for Jesus what is right and wrong, good and bad. But friends, the Messiah is who Jesus says the Messiah is, not who you want the Messiah to be. 
Are you willing to submit to a Jesus who is, but is not who you want him to be? And Peter's rebuke to uh, Jesus rebuke to Peter is pretty stinging. Uh, the command Jesus gives Peter contains the exact same words of rebuke that Jesus spoke at the end of his encounter with the devil in Matthew chapter four. At the end of his encounter with Satan in Matthew chapter four, he said, go, be gone, Satan. And here he uses the same words saying, get behind me. Because, friends, the temptation that Peter was offering him in that moment was the exact same temptation that Satan had offered him in the wilderness. In Matthew chapter 4, the final of the three temptations, Matthew 4, starting in verse 8, again, the devil took Jesus to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said, all of these I'll give to you if you'll just fall down and worship me. Satan had said, hey, sell me your soul and you can have it all. Everything this world has to offer will be yours. Power, authority, success, possessions, wealth, prestige, popularity, pleasure, comfort, escape. You can gain it all and without the cross. It'll just cost you your soul. And church, church be warned, because this offer is still valid today. This offer is still being made to all who would try to follow Christ. You need to understand that when Peter yelled no, when he heard Jesus talking about his suffering and his death, it's because he recognized the implications of what that meant. If Peter and the disciples were going to follow Jesus, if they were his disciples, his followers, then they were going to become like their master. And so a cross-shaped Messiah meant cross-shaped, cross-shaped followers. If the Messiah was going to suffer, his followers were going to suffer. If Christ was going to die, his followers were going to be expected to die. Peter recoiled the way that we do because he realized the truth of what it means to really follow Jesus. It's not to enter a life of privilege and power, but a life of suffering and sacrifice and service and love. And so Jesus teaches his disciples exactly what's at stake in verse 24. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And friends, under Roman rule, a criminal condemned to die, crucifixion was required to take his own cross to the execution site. And in the cities of Palestine, condemned men were frequently seen carrying the heavy wooden cross beams on their backs as they marched off to their death. So when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, they knew exactly what he was talking about. And Jesus says the same thing to you and to I today. If anyone would come after me, you must be ready to suffer, be humiliated, despised, and to die. And when Jesus says deny yourself, some people have thought that means that you're supposed to deny yourself something like during Lent, you deny yourself chocolate. But you're not supposed to deny yourself something. You're supposed to deny the self. Deny self-promotion, deny selfish ambition, deny your lust after power and position and popularity and pleasure. Deny and die to all the treasures of this world for the sake of following Christ. It's as we were singing in the new song we introduced this morning. Bright, bright are the treasures that this life may offer to me. But whatever the pleasure, my God is all I need. 
The Messiah is all I need. So deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And Jesus goes on in verse 25, because whoever is going to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. And as we've noted many times before, this is the statement most often repeated in the Gospels. This statement is repeated six times through the course of the four Gospels, at least once in every one of the Gospels and twice in two of the Gospels. In fact, we saw this same statement earlier in Matthew chapter 10. This is the second time Matthew records Jesus giving us this same teaching. And friends, the reason why this is the teaching of Jesus that is repeated the most often throughout all of the Bible is because this teaching speaks right to the heart of our problem. Most of our lives are spent trying to save our lives. This world values power, possessions, popularity, because somehow we think they'll give us life or value or prevent suffering or postpone death or give us fame that lasts beyond the grave. Or maybe we just spend our days chasing after pleasure to avoid facing the reality of our pain or our emptiness or our mortality. And Jesus says, lose your life. Don't chase after all that stuff. Lose it and invest all you have and all you are for the sake of the kingdom and the gospel. And there you'll find true life. For as he teaches in verse 26, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? And what shall a man give in return for his soul? Friends, the, the philosophies and the personalities of today's world promise. They say, hey, listen, follow me. Follow my 12-step program. Buy my book. Subscribe to my program and I'll give you the whole world. And friends, the real danger is that they're right. The danger is that they're right. You can gain so much that this world has to offer. You can be successful in many of the ways that this world says to be successful. You can enjoy fully the pleasures that this world offers and says is worth enjoying. But once you've gained the whole world, what do you really have? What do you really have? Pastor Francis Chan said our greatest fear should not be a failure but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. You can be very successful at things that don't really matter. You can gain the whole world, friends, but what will it cost you? Every one of us here is investing our lives in something. You are spending your precious moments and minutes and days and years pursuing something. You are seeking to gain something. Church, what are you spending your lives on. As we sang this morning, I pray it said about my life that I lived more to build your name than mine. And church, will that be said of you? Will that be said of me? So don't bow down to the gods of this world who promise so much and deliver so little. Don't waste your life pursuing and succeeding at things that don't really matter. Don't gain the whole world only to come to the end and realize you've lost your soul in the process. Jesus says, follow me, lose your life. But when you do, you gain me. And in me is true life. And Jesus warns in verse 27, there's going to be a day of reckoning for the Son of Man's going to come with his angels and the glory of the Father. He'll repay each person according to what he's done. So he warns there is going to be a day of reckoning. 
and friends on that day. What will be found of your life? On that day, what will be found of your answer to the question? Who do you say that I am? And friends, you've heard the call. Jesus said, follow me, believe in me, because I'm the Messiah, the son of the living God. So who do you say that he is? There are many different answers from this world, and many of you may have come here hardened in your own understanding of who Jesus is. But looking again at this man, hearing again his teaching, considering again his claims, are you still going to stand and demand more miracles, more signs, unwilling to accept all the evidence that's right in front of you? Because there is no more important question to ask and to answer. And this is a question, friends, that isn't just answered with your voice. This is a question you have to answer with your life. Who do you say that Jesus is? Let's pray. Father, I know there may be some here who are considering the claims of, of who Jesus is. Convinced in the understanding maybe that they've carried for a long time or that they've heard parroted over and over again by others. But Father, I pray that you might soften and break through the hardness, that you might speak, and Lord, that they might respond. And Lord, I pray for us, your church, help us not to gain the whole world. Help us not to be successful at all kinds of things that just don't matter. And in the process, lose our very soul. Father, make us faithful, faithful to Christ now and forevermore. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.